Hi, I'm JJ McQuarrie. And I'm Kevin Kozer. And we host Talking Who to You, a podcast dedicated to the Big Finish audio adventures of Doctor Who. Each week, we look at a different Doctor Who story from Big Finish and share what we love and what we don't. We're looking at everything from the very first stories to David Tennant's most recent adventures, and we hope that you'll join us. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and pretty much wherever you find podcasts. So give us a listen, and remember, keep talking Who! Hello, I am Larry Van Mersbergen, the host of the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast. Now that you're reading the Doctor Who Target books in story order and enjoying the thorough discussion of them, maybe you'd like to collect them, or even collect the hardcover editions, or maybe the Pinnacle American editions. For all things in the world of Doctor Who merchandise, from books to the Dalek weather vanes and Dalek cufflinks to the really unusual. Tune in to the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and Podbean. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels. Do you ever get a flash of a memory of a movie you saw as a child but can't remember the name? Perhaps you caught it on TV while staying up later than you should have. Or maybe you never saw it, but you recognize the cover art from the neighborhood video store around the block. At the Video Junkyard Podcast, we dig up these forgotten films and franchises and see if they still hold up in the digital age. You know, one person's trash is another's treasure, something like that. Each episode, hosts Eric Gilbranson and Joe Peterson discuss a number of films selected thematically. We'll be looking at the best, the worst, and the best of the worst at the Video junkyard podcast you are listening to the doctor who target book club podcast happy listening hello fellow time travelers i'm fraser hines and i played jamie mccrimmon in doctor who and you are listening to the doctor who target book club podcast enjoy your travels or as jamie might say enjoy your travels time travelers and welcome back to the doctor who target book club the podcast in which we undertake the evergreen task of discussing in story order all the doctor who novelizations because plants evergreen etc my name is tony witt and today we have an equally evergreen four-person discussion panel including our so-called expert who's been a who fan since 1979 that would be me there's our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello. We also have a semi-novice fan, one who has seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've done for this podcast, and this time around, it's our resident botanist, the glamorous Jenny Ingersoll. Hello, Jenny. Greetings. And finally, we welcome our special guest, the host of the Video Junkyard podcast and the Police Box in the Junkyard podcast, Eric O'Branson. Hello, Eric. Hello. How is everyone tonight? Doing good. Feeling fine. Doing okay. Apart from new snowfall. Yeah. Yeah, there's snow outside. I saw it coming down pretty good as I was heading down to record. Yeah, just insanity. Before we get started with the fun and frolic, Eric, why don't you tell us about your two podcasts and what they actually cover? 
Absolutely. I am the co-host of the Video Junkyard podcast, and that's kind of our flagship. It was the first show a buddy of mine, Joe Peterson, and I started. And essentially, we cover cult and forgotten films from the 80s and 90s. Think about those video store gems that you never picked up, but you remember the cover art or whatever from. That's kind of the territory we're covering. We don't always stick to that perfectly, but if that kind of thing sounds to your interest, you'll probably find most of what we're doing on there, at least mildly interesting. That's going strong for almost three years now, and we just recorded our 138th episode, if you can believe that. It's crazy. Wow. Wow. We're doing that weekly, and so that takes up a lot of my time. But in my spare time, because I am also a big Doctor Who fan, I have started a spinoff podcast called The Police Box and the Junkyard Podcast, which pretty much follows the same format, but we are focusing all on Doctor Who material. And I select a Doctor Who item, whether it be the television story, a audio adventure, or a novel or nonfiction book, and we cover that. And I Uh, That at this point is coming out monthly, and I say that like kind of hesitantly because it should come out once a month, but is it exactly four weeks apart? Not always. (laughs) It's when I can get it done. I'm sure you understand. Oh, (laughs) yes. Better than you know. But yeah, so those are both available under the Video Junkyard podcast umbrella, and we're available on SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, Podcast Addict, uh, Spotify, pretty much any of the podcast aggregators and such. Either of those sound interesting to you, go out and subscribe to Video Junkyard Podcast, and you get both of those shows through that one feed. Fantastic. All right. And just so our listeners know, though I think they already do know, Eric is one of our Patreons, because we say the name of his podcast in the list of our patrons every week that we record this, just so you know. Because you're about to hear it again. (laughs) If you like what you're hearing, please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash DWTargetBC. Depending on the amount you give per month, you will receive, among other possible goodies, face masks, mugs, and t-shirts with our logos on them, just like giving to PBS, but not a Target book. Since we know you have so many of those, you've taken to storing them in your greenhouse next to your carnivorous plants. (laughs) Just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. And as usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, Toby Bengelsdorf, Jay Berry, The Video Junkyard Podcast, The Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, Hans Wax, Stephen Pickering, James Sumnall, Dave Davis, and Guy Lambert. Thank you all. Thanks, y'all. Thank you. We also have our Goodreads discussion group where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can find us there at tinyurl.com forward slash y7kmaspr. In fact, we expect you to. We continue now with the final story of Tom Baker's second season with our discussion of Philip Hinchcliffe's novelization of Robert Banks Stewart's script, The Seeds of Doom. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who and the Seeds of Doom, adapted by Philip Pinchcliffe from the script by Robert Banks Stewart that aired from 1376 to 12476, published by Target Books in February 1977. As of this recording in February of 2021, this title is currently out of print, but is available as an unabridged audiobook, 128 pages. Continuing this season's adaptations of classic horror, this one is another twofer, doing both The Thing, though it's actually closer to the novella that the movie was based on than to the original movie, and The Quatermass Experiment though it also has more than a few touches of Day of the Triffids. Several notable things about this one. Not only is it the last story in its season, it's also the last story that director Douglas Camfield, who had been working on the show all the way back in the Hartnell era, would helm. Camfield suffered from a heart condition, and the story goes that his wife, Sheila Dunn, who appeared on screen in Inferno as Petra, made him go into a church and swear that he would never do the show again because it always caused him so much stress. In fact, I think I'd even heard that it was Canterbury Cathedral. 
He would die from this condition in 1984, and she herself died in 2004. Because this is directed by Canfield, as with The Loch Ness Monster, also written by Robert Banks Stewart, the music was done by Jeffrey Bergen, and this would be his last work on the series as well. Speaking of lasts, it was also meant to be Sarah's last story. Hmm. The story scripted as her finale was pushed back to the next season due to various problems with it. And when she heard about the next story that they were going to be making at the beginning of the next season, she agreed to stay on, albeit briefly. It is also the last appearance in the 1970s of Unit, and sadly it doesn't even include the Brigadier and Benton. This was deliberate on the production team's part as they wanted to move the show away from its reliance on Unit. A couple more things to note about the story. It was originally called The Seeds of Death, but that was changed for obvious reasons. Um, I may need to tell Jenny about that. Jenny, there's a second Doctor story called The Seeds of Death. Oh, okay. Yeah, so they had to change this one, so they made it Scenes of Doom, which makes it completely different. Yeah. Writers couldn't just Google it back then, right? So. <laughs> no, obviously not. <laughs> It features an axon costume painted green for the crinoid's intermediate form, which is very effective. However, and I'll likely get in trouble from some quarters for making fun of the effects again, but this is a pretty universal opinion. The cliffhanger to episode four suffers in particular because the crinoid costume used there is not so effective. If you remember that episode of The Simpsons where Homer is wearing a muumuu because he's gotten fat so he can work from home, <laughs> imagine Homer running down a hallway towards you. That's what that last shot of the crinoid bearing down on the Doctor and Sarah looks like. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It is insanely painful to the point, and this is in my defense, that they pointed out in the DVD making of documentary. Yeah. So there. <laughs> The story in general was still effective enough for Mary Whitehouse to say, strangulation by hand, by claw, by obscene vegetable matter. What does she have against <laughs> vegetable matter? <laughs> Is the latest gimmick sufficiently close up so that they get the point and just for a little variety, show the children how to make a Molotov cocktail? No, no, they don't. <laughs> I don't think she has a problem with the vegetable matter. It's obscene right. vegetable matter that she has I mean, an issue with. The fact that she actually pointed out hand, claw, and vegetable matter, she's watching pretty closely. I'm not convinced that she was entirely unengaged in the, the show. <laughs> oh, yeah. She had to have been, well, not a fan, but she was definitely a regular watcher. However, if there was any story that she could see evil in the crotch of a tree of, <laughs> it would be this one. And speaking of things blowing up, the TARDIS prop in the final scene collapsed on Liz Sladen while she was inside it, which prompted the team to think that maybe it was finally time to replace it, since they'd been using it nonstop since 1963. Really? The same prop this whole time? Yeah. Yep. Oh my god. It was looking rough <laughs> by the end, too. Yeah. Yeah. Finally redid it, even though the, the new one looks very much like the old one. That's the first changeover. It took four doctors, but they finally changed the prop. This book was also the next to last novelization and story order to get a pinnacle release in the United States, with such changes as the Doctor's weight being rendered in pounds rather than stone. Which is hilarious, by the way. It's very exact. 
they say the doctor's 218 pounds and it's like oh yeah that is 16 stone <laughs> down to the pound because we americans can't handle when something is different oh my god stone what does that mean crazy <laughs> meters what is that like, well, okay now i have to stop reading this yep. book yeah <laughs> exactly <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's have a dramatic reading of the back cover, shall we? Eric, we normally have the guest do the dramatic reading, if you'd be willing to do it. I sure can. Yep. In the snowy wastes of blizzard-swept Antarctica, a strange pod-like object is unearthed, buried deep in the ice. Curiosity turns to alarm as the pod begins to grow, then horror when suddenly it cracks open and a snaking green tendril shoots out, mercilessly seeking the nearest live victim. In London, the botanical experts are bewildered. Doctor Who is called in to fight this unknown horror, but will he be in time to save the Earth from the rapidly spreading tentacles of the Chronoi, giant man-eating monster from an alien world? Well, Eric, what was your first impression of this when you first got it? It's interesting because Philip Hinchcliffe is probably one of my favorite showrunners and contributors to Doctor Who, and that was kind of on my first watch through the era where I really got excited about it. And maybe novelist he is not, amongst all of his talents, because I... Oh, thank God. I was like, wait, is, is he in love with this guy? Because I'm really ready to rip into it. No, like, I mean, in a way I am, but I was a little fan. All of the Target novels, I'm realistic. I've read enough of them to understand. It's going to be kind of a pretty basic and straightforward translation of the screenplay or teleplay to text. But the cool thing about a lot of them, you get a little bit extra. You get a little detail here that us nerds can kind of cling on to, or you get like a little something more than what you got out of the TV story. I felt like this one was the opposite. And it wasn't just he trimmed a little bit of fat here and there. He totally removed a subplot. Yeah. <laughs> wait, wait, there was another plot? Aside yes. from the Molotov cocktails, the jets, the lasers, the swords. <laughs> yeah, there was the salty artist who was trying to get her paycheck. Basically, my first impression upon finishing, closing this up for the first time was like, wow, that was a six-part story that I feel like was never incredibly boring as a TV story. And he took it and brought it down to like maybe something they could have covered in two episodes. He trimmed so much fat off of it, I feel like he didn't leave enough on there for it to cook in some flavor. Everything's gone. The characters are gone. Even the doctor is hard to relate to. If you were to happen to be in a dime store and pick this thing up just out of like, hey, here's a cool sci-fi thing. I don't really know Doctor Who, but this looks fun. I don't even think you could pick up on the character of the fourth doctor. I think you have to have that knowledge going into it. That's my very long first impression. <laughs> no worries. Okay. Jenny, how about your first impression? When I saw the cover, I was like, oh, wow, there's a lot going on here. And that would turn out to be the harbinger for my impression of the rest of this text, which is just a mess in terms of story. And I don't know, I, I always feel incredibly pretentious when I'm like, oh, I got a master's in fine arts and fiction. That means shit. But I have read a lot of things and I, and I enjoy that. I like to think about story and how it's functioning, especially when there actually is a story that sometimes isn't working. It's a fun exercise for me to think what would make this thing better. Waterworld. I love that movie because I'm like, oh, this could have been so cool, but it just is fucked up on a few places. And <laughs> oh, Kevin Costner. This also is pleasurable in that aspect. But my God, is there just a lot of stuff going on? I, I do a, a thing in my note taking where if there's something awkward or something that I think it would be entertaining for me to make a joke about, I put a little circle next to it. In the book for last week, I had like three of those, three circles for, for four pages of my notes because it was just such a, a lovely piece of, of writing. 
This, I think I have 37. Like, it, just, it was nonstop awkwardness. And I'm so heartened to hear that you also realize that for whatever reason, this didn't get the, the care that it should. And I can understand why that might have been, given maybe all the things that were going on in the show that then the writer tried to compress into this form that really is just a bit baffling. All right. And Dalton, your first impression. Yeah, I'm like Jenny. Uh, seeing the cover, it's like, oh, yeah, this is going to be great. And then I started reading. <laughs> there were multiple times where I felt like I had been reading for so long. And then I had been reading 50 pages when it had only been 10. Hearing that it's a six-parter, that makes sense. It felt overly long for being as short as it was. I don't know how that works. Timey-wimey whatever. <laughs> Reading this, I was finding myself continually checking the clock. This feels like it's going on forever. Splitting the story into two different locations felt odd to me as well. I did pick up on a lot of the thing undertones, you know, the inspiration there. Why did they have to go back to the UK? Well, Interesting you should ask that, because the legend had it that Philip Hitchcliffe wanted to shorten the season by two episodes, and they wouldn't let him, so he said, hey, let's tack two episodes onto the four-parter we have, but we'll put them at the beginning of the story rather than at the end. Thing is, though, from what I've been able to track down, it looks like that's just legend. It looks like it was always intended to be a six-parter. The way six-parters work is you have a four-parter and then you have like a two-episode coda, and that tends to work fairly well. In fact, it actually works really well for this story when you watch it. It doesn't seem to work as well on the page, and it certainly doesn't work as well, to borrow Eric's metaphor, when you've got Hinchcliffe trimming the fat as if he's trying to lose weight, because it's insane. Braden Morbius is a four-parter, and Terrence Sticks did that in 136, I think? 140? And this is a six-parter and 128. You can kind of see the difference there. Well, it sounds like we're not going to have a lot of good to say about this book, so why don't we start with the things you actually liked about this book, if anything? I did think there were some good lines. I really like that line about the pension. That made me laugh. I think it's like someone was worried about something and then they were like, oh, well, it's going to impact your pension. And then he was like, oh, <laughs> shit, we got to do something about it now. <laughs> I was like, hey, yeah, that, that works. I think the doctor had some good lines in here. In the very beginning, I got excited about some of the language because there was that great line about the doctor dumping his feet onto the desk, which I thought was a great verb. Or this, And I could really see that. Not bravadoing, but, but carelessly coming into the office of some fancy government bureaucracy and putting his feet on the desk but dumping them. I thought that that was a nice line. I think that the way some themes started to emerge, I'm um, getting ensnared in greed there was kind of that one paragraph that was going in that direction that I thought, yeah, you know, that that would be a good thing to build up for this this narrative. I think that that would have worked. I was really expecting for Harrison Chase to merge with the crinoid. I thought, you know, he loves plants. He hates humanity. Why wouldn't he want to be taken over by the plant? Like, why wouldn't he and the crinoid kind of merge to become this big, crazy monster? It's really the, the plant embodiment of all of his greed. That just made so much sense. And yet it didn't really happen. He just went into a trance. Great. Like, there's nothing that I hate more in these books than someone going into a fucking trance. The story, I feel like, really primed itself well for that, but didn't go in that direction, which was a little disappointing. But 
those are some high points. Well, on screen, when Chase is essentially possessed by the crinoid, it actually is very effective, but it's all in the performance, the direction, and the music. I think Eric will probably agree with me that this story is a masterpiece on the screen. It's just amazing. Yes, agreed. It was one of my favorite moments on my initial watcher and crazy enough i've never really gone back to it i think i caught bits and pieces of it on pluto tv they have the great classic doctor who channel but i don't think i've seen it in its entirety since my first watch through it's long overdue especially now that i read this book because i purposely didn't rewatch it before this because i wanted to concentrate on the book and now i kind of wish i did because <laughs> i could remember you know more pleasantly but yeah exactly was, was there anything that you liked in this version eric this is so so cruel of uh, beating up on somebody who I you know generally kind of like in Doctor Who dumb, but there's so little I like about the way it's written or the prose or anything is I feel like everything I really like about it comes out of the teleplay anyway, out of Banks stuff. So, I mean, I I love like the giant crinoid stuff. I love the kind of the thing prologue, you know, the Antarctica part of it. I was just talking to a co-host from the Video Junkyard podcast, Ryan Steiskel, the other night about uh, we were talking about kaiju movies and and somehow doctor who got brought into it and he was like how come doctor who's never done like a you know giant monster movie or something is there and he's not real familiar with classic i'm like have they ever done that in any respect and i'm like oh well kind of not really but i think the closest they ever got was you know probably the seeds of doom with the giant coronoid lurking over that english manor house i absolutely love all that stuff about it and just the the relationship it has to quater mass I, I'm not as familiar with Day of Triffids. I, I know what it is, but um, just the cl- kind of classic horror thing. That's what I love about this whole season. People have a love it or hate it, I think, thing with Hinchcliffe's adapting classic horror onto Doctor Who, but definitely right up my alley because that's, you know, one of my other things that I'm really a big fan of is cl- classic horror films. And um, my favorite moments are all story things, so I feel like it wasn't a whole lot that came right out of this novel. It, it reads like a screenplay more than it reads like a novel to me. And yeah, I think most of the great stuff out of it is already there in the story. Yeah. Dix gets a lot of stick <laughs> for being a uh, script-to-page type of writer, but Hinchcliffe is much worse at it. Dalton was on the podcast for The Keys of Marinus, mm-hmm. and I remember how we just despised that book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not great. And we're going to get the next one, unfortunately, is also going to be Hinchcliffe, as it turns out. And it's going to have much the same effect, as I recall. But luckily, he doesn't do any other books, as far as I know, and that's fine by me. Hooray! <laughs> Sorry, he's still alive. Yeah. Hooray! <laughs> well, he is, yeah. and he's writing for Big Finish, and some of that stuff's great too. So he 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 does what he does great. Just don't bring him into this. <laughs> he doesn't belong here. Like this yeah. is not his forte. He can't have a prose. I think it's perfectly fine with dialogue and such because his Big Finish stuff is pretty good. But the prose, no. Dalton, was there anything in the book that you liked? I think that the characterization of Harrison Chase is this kind of demented, too far gone, plant obsessed person. When we're introduced to him, he asks what they're going to do about bonsai. That in and of itself describes him first thing. He is fucking insane. That is him. (laughs) And so seeing him throughout the rest of the book be this crazy plant man. It doesn't really live up to that, but I I love that kind of introduction to him as being so obsessed with plants that he thinks that bonsai are uh, a problem that need to be solved. Yeah. (laughs) On a national or international level, right? (laughs) Yes, exactly. That's a really good point. There's a line that Hinchcliffe gets rid of 
that's right in that same exchange when Dunbar is trying to sell Chase the location of the crinoid. He says it's an entirely new kind of plant and Chase says hybrids a crime against nature and you're like oh my god he really has it bad. Hinchcliffe gets rid of that. But yeah, that's how obsessed he is. He's he's basically a Bond villain with a plant fetish. I was getting major Bond feelings from a lot of this in good and bad ways. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right down to his henchmen and, and everything. So, like, oh, God, yeah. yeah. It probably won't surprise you to recall that Robert Banks Stewart wrote a lot of episodes for the Avengers you know, back in the 60s. You could definitely transplant, huh, so to speak. Oh. You could transplant <laughs> the Doctor and Sarah Jane Smith into one of those stories, but then bring John Steed and Mrs. Peel into this one, and it would basically be the same story. There'd be a few more karate kicks on Sarah's part, but overall, it would be the same story, which is something I love about it, but that doesn't translate to the page, at least not with someone with Hinchcliffe's skill set. So where do we start with, with this roast that we're going to do of it? <laughs> this vegetable soup we're going to make of this book. You know, I I can start there. There were just some phrases that were very odd to me. And maybe I'll I'll ask that first. Whenever they were talking about this pod infecting you and taking you over, and they would say like, oh, like a vegetable appendage or a vegetal and things. I was like, is this just um, a UKism? Because when I hear that, I imagine someone growing broccoli out of their arm. Like it's just a really (laughs) not scary image. It's like, I'm zucchini monster. Ha, come get your vitamins. No, I I would say plant-like or or something connoting a plant, not a vegetable, which is just so unscary. But I don't know if that was something that I'm, as an American, not understanding the way that it would have been read in Britain. Um, But there were just so many things like that. There were these lines that were so obvious. You'd be like, what are they doing in the snow? Well, he's not building a snowman. Ha ha. And I'm like, what? Or it's like, he's sick. Well, it's not the measles. I'm like, can we not? (laughs) This is not funny. It's just weird. And those are Hinchcliffe editions, come to think of it. I don't remember those lines in the original at all. Oh, I'm I'm so sorry, Hinchcliffe. I'm I'm so sorry. (laughs) It didn't work. There are just so many things, like some major internal logic issues with the narrative. Like, if the doctor is the flippin' president of the Intergalactic Flora Society... How on earth would he not have been able to anticipate some of the issues that happened with this pod? Leaving it alone with people, or the very coy way that the story introduces at certain points. Oh, by the way, we need to worry about this because it's going to shoot out pod soon. I was like, if we as a reader had known that 50 pages earlier, this plot would have been entirely different. I hate when a story does that, that it uses deception as a attention maker of its own instead of integrating it into the narrative and letting that tension work itself out. It makes the reader feel really dumb, kind of like this whole, and then it was a dream, or very often and stereotypically female characters in the dialogue are like, oh, I need to tell you something, but I can't, and run away, and that's supposed to generate some sort of tension for us, but it's it doesn't, it's stupid. And the story did that a lot of times. There's this part where the doctor blames uh, on that other researcher for mentioning the second pod, but he mentioned it. 
Or how on earth are these random people who've never been to this camp before, Scorby and the other guy, supposed to know how to blow it up when they've literally been there one fucking time? <laughs> like, there's just a lot of questions. Well, they're and Bond flunkies, of course. They, well, Bond villain flunkies, yeah. I'm not a person who is usually very pedantic about details like this. Like, if a story is, is fine, I'm more than happy to just skate along with it and not question those things. But the doctor, like, called Sarah from the lab. It was like, by the way, he remembered this telephone number and called her. I was like, what? And then they found some swords. Excuse me? <laughs> or, or they were like, geez, how can we defeat this plant? And I'm like, you again are the president of the Intergalactic Flora Society. How would you have taken so long to know that steam or the fire or whatever was the solution? It really made the character of the doctor to me seem quite ignorant when we know that the doctor knows all kinds of things. And that's what we're we're used to seeing him as. And you never notice those things in the televised version. They exist in the televised version. I mean, the doctor's thing about him being the president of the Intergalactic Floral Society is taken as a joke. I believe it's exactly that. Apart from that, everything about him calling her in the house and somehow remembering the number that he just happened to memorize, it's like, on the page, that makes no fucking sense. Also, I just have to point out, they Agent orange Sarah in the face. Yes. They said that this was a military-grade defoliant. This was published in 1977. I was like, did they Agent Orange Sarah in the face? Like, what they probably is happening did. in this book? I was just aghast. I really... And so there's so many other things. <laughs> oh, yeah. She's <laughs> more aghast really... than you were. Oh, my God. Just really to add on to what Jenny was saying about some of the, like, little pieces that just don't quite make sense him remembering the phone number and and it was that like you said tony that it plays well on screen because it's taken as a joke and that's because the fourth doctor is just crazy like i mean he just has that kind of alien insanity he's gonna say these wild things is he lying is he telling the truth is he making a joke i'm not sure but you know he's smiling but he's serious kind of but you don't get any of that because you can't understand the fourth doctor given just the text of this book. The character's not there and it doesn't make any sense. Now, being that we have some familiarity with it, it's it's a little bit easier to be like, oh, okay, I can hear Tom Baker's voice saying that. All of a sudden it works for me. But if you don't have that, you're absolutely right. It just seems like they're pulling that stuff out of the air. It's got no grounding in the actual story whatsoever. We're used to the Doctor being the smartest person in the room, and he just bumbles his way through this one. And I think that's even true in the TV story, but he does it much more doctorly, maybe? I don't know. <laughs> he does it with the sort of finesse. I was, I was going to say, yeah, the charisma of Tom Baker playing the fourth Doctor carries it along. Exactly. And he does bumble along, but there are a few spots. In fact, this is the one thing that I give Hinchcliffe some credit for, even though it's actually one of my favorite parts of the story. In chapter two, he removes what I think is the most interesting exchange in the entire story because they have to amputate Winlet's arm. And he says that Moberly has to do it. He says, well, you're a doctor. Can't you do it? And the doctor says, you must help yourselves in this very low, grim tone. Who's going to perform this operation? Oh, you are, Moberly. You're the only one who can. But I'm not a surgeon. What about you? You're a doctor. You must help yourselves. And it's like, wait, what? Why are you refusing them help? And Sarah actually has to step in and say, he's not a medical doctor. You should really do this. But it's one of those things that if the doctor had just been willing to do the amputation right then, rather than sending Moberly, who doesn't really know what he's doing, off to prepare for it, 
we may actually have a very different and much shorter story here because it definitely causes Moberly to get killed at the end of that chapter. But but don't they also say that his whole right side is covered? Yeah. So chopping off his arm's not going to do much whenever the rest of his body's also covered in the shit. I think Hinchcliffe also gets rid of a line that says that the source of the infection needs to be separated from the rest of the body or something along those gotcha. lines. Yeah, so it's kind of like that's where the source of the infection is, where his arm was snatched by the crinoid vine. Those are the kind of details you just can't cut out of a story. It's just like... <laughs> yeah, I, I was like, why are they going to cut off his arm if, like, the whole right side of his body is covered and stuff, too? Like, it's going to keep spreading. Yes, exactly. No, it just doesn't make any sense. And to, to Eric's point, I love a bumbling character. Dumbledore, he's a bumbler, right? He's always just kind of wandering around with his lemon drops and platitudes, and somehow he's, like, the strongest wizard in the entire known universe. Or we can think of a ton of other characters who seem to bumble their way through things and always have that kind of magic behind him. And, and we accept that. And usually I do because we know from the, the text that that is what kind of person this is. But you're right. They've removed so much of the kind of characterizing fat of this, to borrow your, your metaphor, that then we can only rely on the plot points and then those start to not make sense. It's amazing how much Hinchcliffe has removed here and how it just destroys some very good parts of the plot, especially when this is a story that he himself produced. It's almost like he got so concerned with the page count or something, and this one doesn't even get up to like the average page count of even a Target book, I don't think. You guys have read so many, I feel like most of them are longer. This one's very brief. Yeah, it is. Doesn't feel brief, though. Yeah, it's mercifully short. It's like he got so obsessed with, okay, well, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna trim the artist character out because I, I think that's kind of superfluous fluff. And then, hey, what else could I lose to get this down to page? Well, I could lose this detail and this detail. Then turned into like a mad doctor all of a sudden, you know, maniacally laughing. And this can come out. <laughs> and this too. And this too. And this too. <laughs> and it just like. <laughs> uh, and then finally he was out of control and just, you know, removed most of the story and all of the character details. And finally was like, okay, well, this is significantly short. I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. And I completely agree with you, Eric, about the whole Amelia Ducasse subplot, because I adore that character. Holy shit, she is fantastic. This eccentric old English lady artist. She gets more than just that one scene that we get in the book. And in fact, the scene in the book is less elegant and sparkling than it is on screen. I almost forgot she was in the book, and when I was reading something about the things they change, I was like, oh, they, they gave her a scene in the book. I was like, oh, that's right, they do ask her a question or two about the painting, and that's it. <laughs> yeah, on screen they use her, and she's a great character. They also use her as a kind of early window into the world of Harrison Chase. Even prior to the Doctor and Sarah arriving, you get some of this idea of who this person is and his insanity. To me, it doesn't seem superfluous the way that Hinchcliffe treated it. But Is the painting always found in the trunk or the boot yes. of, of the limo? It is. <laughs> That's, it's so absurd. Yeah. Like, really? Just the fact that there even was like a limo chase. I'm like, what? what is? Yeah, like, why? This is how they're going to find the big bad guy is because of a painting that he bought from someone <laughs> in, in the back of a limo. What? Which apparently he forgets that he commissioned from this famous artist who's basically like a British older version of Georgia O'Keeffe. 
and he forgets that he's commissioned this painting from her. Oh my god. Robert Banks Stewart uses that character so well because it's very much an Avengers trope to have this older eccentric be a significant part of the plot. And in her case, it's her coming to his mansion to demand payment for the painting but also to get a message out to Sir Colin and to Dunbar, because they've come in the car with her, to say, yeah, the Doctor and Sarah are in there. I just spoke to Sarah. She's in there. And she is a prime mover of the plot at that moment. And it's brilliant. But it's not here at all. It's ridiculous. It's either serendipity, if you're being generous, or sheer plot contrivance, if you're not. And that's true in the script, but you don't notice it nearly so much when you're carried away with the story which this book cannot do. Another thing that Hinchcliffe ruined was the relationship between the Doctor and Scorby. I remember this being fantastic on screen. Just the antagonizing way that they talk to one another and the Doctor just kind of sends him up all the time. The lines are there. The dialogue is there. But I don't feel like it's given any of the humor and kind of the way... And I know that's probably... We're losing that in performance. But other people that have adapted things into novels are able to bring, you know, that with them. That's kind of the job, right? And I think that just totally is lost here. Scorby becomes a kind of totally brainless thug here. I guess in a lot of ways he always was that, but the, I don't know. The way that him and the Doctor have this kind of antagonistic relationship, I remember being one of the pieces of humor in, in the show, and I didn't feel like any of that came off that way from the page. Definitely not. Yeah, the character of Scorby is just flat here. No, and moreover... It's totally uneven. The first time that we meet Scorby, it's like, oh yeah, let's blow this place up. Whoever's with them is like, you're going to kill five people. We, we don't even know that man. And he's like, no, let's fucking blow it up. And you're like, okay, so this guy's a psychopath. All he cares about is money. That's the primary thing that we know about him. And then when we get back to England, he's like, oh, but, but everybody, aren't you worried about Chase? I'm going to go back and find him. I'm like, why on earth are you worried about that guy? This makes no sense. Every other moment, Sarah is reprimanding you for being so cold-hearted and not caring about anybody but yourself. And then the next page, you're going to be worrying about your weird, crazy boss who hasn't shown you like a single moment of, of anything other than being crazy and boss-like for this entire 100 pages make it make sense it just doesn't make any sense he has to take care of his boss because he pays him but even that is very flat yeah yeah no but i didn't get that implication at all I, I get it that he's actually really worried about him because no one else is they're like hey that guy is long gone like, clearly you're not going to be getting your money at this point man plants are taking over the entire <laughs> world Hinchcliffe actually takes out something where the doctor asks Scorby, why are you doing this? Chase is obviously mad. Why do you work for him? And Scorby says he pays well. And when it comes to money, Mr. Chase and I are of the same religion. And the doctor recognizes the quote. And there's this lovely back and forth that goes on with Scorby's character that it's just flattened in this version completely. He gives this manic speech just before he runs out to his death, come to think about it, about how he's always had to make his own way and he's never been able to depend on anybody but himself.
he doesn't want to depend on anybody now and that's part of the reason why he makes that mad dash that ends up being suicidal that's gone there's no characterization none we don't even get the really good characterization we get of keeler and Keeler's just a guy who is a botanist and then ends up getting infected. And that's all we know about him. Yeah. It's insane. And then when, like, I don't know, like, it's just, it's so, it's so crazy. When th- there's this whole, like, plant mulching machine, which is also just another, like, layer of what the hell that's layered into <laughs> the story. Like, I have a really hard time seeing it visually or just knowing what it is. I'm like, okay, so there's, like, these two rolly spiky things in a conveyor belt that apparently just mulch you out into a pile of dead pulpy body that somehow feeds the whole rest of the garden. Like, it's very confusing. But then Chase goes into this thing, and this is on the PDF page 94. Shaking from his ordeal, the doctor staggered over to Sarah. I tried to save him, he said. Sarah nodded mutely, so she said nothing. Chase undoubtedly deserved to die, but it was not a death she would have wished on anyone. In a matter of seconds, the doctor had freed her, and they had left without a backward glance. Bye. (laughs) Like, that's it. Left without a backward glance. That moment is intense on screen. And it's probably one of those moments that Mary Whitehouse looked at and said, oh no, this show must go off the air. There's not a drop of blood in that scene. (laughs) Mary Whitehouse. It's like a predecessor to Saw. Yeah, it is easily one of the biggest patches of nightmare fuel ever in classic Doctor Who. Yet it's nothing on the page. Yeah, it's laughable here. It it makes it seem like this is what I, I claim a classic air in showing versus telling the story is telling us oh chase does undoubtedly deserved to die but it was not a death I, I don't want to be told that i want to feel that i want the characters in the story to make me know that already and then for whatever's happening in the scene to fulfill that but instead they're, they're telling me what to feel and then they just say they left without a backwards plan <laughs> like that's the end of that <laughs> seems so callous that but just like oh okay well moving on which you know to me that's what hinchcliffe is doing here he's like oh what's my next thing i need to write about so i can finish this and go yes. do whatever i do so cavalier yeah i have to wonder what terrence Dix would have done with this what would Dix do <laughs> yeah I, I don't think hinchcliffe was asking himself that question nearly enough when writing this because terrence Dix probably would have done a script to page sort of thing but he would have kept that wordplay because terrence Dix loves his wordplay and this is really good wordplay he kept most of it with his novelization of terror of the zygons the Loch Ness monster that book actually shines pretty well on the page. This one, <laughs> <laughs> The thug with a gun lines, one that I just laughably bad. And when you remind, you reminded me of it when I was reading through, skimming through the notes. And it's just like, oh my gosh, like that's not even right. Like this isn't fiction, right? What is going on on this page? How do, how do we get this line? Like, how did we get to this point? <laughs> uh... Yeah. There's, there's another line like that that I'm like, are you kidding me? I would tell one of my creative writing students never to use the line, with a bound, he <laughs> sprang to her side and freed her from... Yeah, with one bound, he was by her side and untying the ropes. <laughs> with a single bound, he was free. <laughs> it's another example of what Jenny said is telling instead of showing. The doctor pounded through the snow, his scarf flailing in the wind. What a fool he had been. The pod stolen by a thug with a gun, exclamation point. <laughs> the consequences were incalculable. Like, yes. <sighs> Those exclamation points, too. Well, and also, it's to finish the paragraph with the consequences were incalculable. If we haven't figured that out by now, you're not doing a good job of getting us to this point. You don't have to write that down. No. 
No, there's another line like that, too, that I just about died when I read it that was like, they were being led to their inevitable deaths. I was like, no shit, Sherlock. <laughs> They're going into the mulcher. Like, why do you need to tell us that? It really, at times, does read like screen direction or script notes. He was like, well, this sounds useful. Let's put it in the book. How can I reach my word count for this yeah. shit? <laughs> like, Hinchcliffe. Sounds like the excited yelling guy at the end of 1940s oh film serials that would be like, they're being led into their death. Kind of thing. What will happen next yes, time? Tune exactly. in. Yeah, so. Well, we should have known that we were in trouble when in the first chapter, I think it's on the first page, Stevenson says something about as if the approaching blizzard carried with it a sense of impending doom. Maybe seeds of doom, perhaps? <laughs> oh it's like, oh. God. Yeah, I was going to say, might as well just put the title in there. Roll credits. <laughs> well, I'm like, that guy, like right from the beginning, he's the one that feels worried about the pod. He's making the point of saying, oh, this is strange and I'm feeling odd about it. Um, Will, it's like, oh, must have been that rice pudding you had for lunch. <laughs> I'm like, first of all, I just read this huge long article about what scientists get to eat in the Antarctic, and it's not <laughs> rice pudding. But anyway, so John Stevenson, I guess, is, you know, he's like, I'm not joking. He's mesmerized by it. He's really worried about this. He's like, oh, it's alive. But then instead of saying like, hey, this thing is alive. This is bad. We need to burn it. We need to blow it up. Apparently there are explosives there. We need to throw it back in the snow. He's right. like, here, let me take pictures of it and sit next to it all night. <laughs> make any sense. Like, Let's take turns sitting with this thing alone. Yeah, alone. Yes. Like, oh God. I did. I definitely picked up on the thing, you know, reference. And I love the thing. It's one of my favorite movies ever. In fact, I'm questioning why I haven't watched it yet in the claustrophobia of the pandemic and the snow, because now would be, if any time, <laughs> the best time to watch that movie. And I will say that I didn't actually mind that they moved the story from the Antarctic to England, because I think we've seen other successful examples of where kind of at the midpoint of the movie or at the end of that act one climax we do shift setting what i think of is the mummy where they're in egypt and then they go to england and some shit happens and then they go back to egypt we've seen that and i thought well this is interesting like we're, we're traveling i i do think that the reason why we feel like why is this happening is because the story as a whole just doesn't make any sense i actually don't mind that as an idea it's like well okay you want to give me thing and now you want to give me something else fine i i will roll with that but you know i just wish it had been executed a little bit better I'll make the argument that this story is every bit as tightly plotted as Brain Morbius, but it is not being translated to the page efficiently. Well, efficiently, yes. Effectively, no. That's the biggest problem with it. The whole idea of the switching of the settings, I think for me, my issue starts whenever the two new characters show up at the camp in Antarctica, unannounced. You don't think something's up? Whenever you just stumbled upon some magic seed pod from 20,000 years ago and two people just show up out of nowhere, you're not suspicious of them. You're just like, yeah, come on, hang out with us. Well, I think, again, that's something that suffers with Hinchcliffe's translation because on screen, it kind of makes some sense because they do act as if they've gotten lost in the snow. And the doctor is so distracted by what he's having to deal with with the crinoid, he doesn't have a chance to think of it. Hinchcliffe also gets rid of some of the doctor's other really passionate moments in this. I, I was kind of amazed, for instance, when Scorby takes Sarah with them. The doctor doesn't raise a single objection. On screen, Tom Baker is screaming at him to bring her back. You're not going to shoot them in cold blood? Why not? No. 
I've got a better idea. There are a couple of points at which he screams at Scorby. He also screams at Sarah at one point when she calls uh, the crinoid Winlet still. All of that's missing because Hinchcliffe doesn't know how to translate it to the page. It bleh. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Just exasperated sigh. Yeah. <laughs> the whole book is an exasperated sigh. Oh, what else? Uh, oh, I don't know why there's suddenly a 500-year diary in Chapter 12. I think Hinchcliffe is remembering that Patrick Troughton had one and then forgetting that Tom Baker didn't. I don't know why that's there. It's just, oh, God. There's the line about the seed pods traveling in pairs like policemen. <laughs> That line's brilliant on screen, especially since Sarah actually answers him back and says, Oh, what do you want to do? Buy it a truncheon? And he says, No, take it into custody and put it in the freezer. And it's a great back and forth, and it just lies there flat on the page and makes you think, Why do they travel in pairs? Yeah, it feels like definitely like there should have been some kind of back and forth there, but it's totally gone. And so the line is just kind of ambiguous. It's like, am I supposed to think that's funny? Is he serious? What's what's happening? <laughs> there was no ability to detect what was supposed to be funny or what was not supposed to be or when the doctor was serious. We've all read Doctor Who books. That can be done. It's not like it can't be done on the page. It just takes a little bit of painting the character and not just delivering a screenplay in novel form. Well, even a screenplay would do a better job at that because it has to tell the actors how to do it. But Even the scripted stuff like the Doctor deciding to answer Scorby's command to talk by talking about Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. And it's funny as hell on screen, but it's not on the page. And it's followed with... Sarah's saying he went mad, and the doctor says, yes, you could say he's not quite himself anymore. That's the line, and it really is effective, but it just lies flat on the page. That line's delivered in one of those knowing, dun-dun-dun, not himself anymore, he's turning into the plant monster, but, like, from the page, you, do, you get nothing. Yeah. You can't tell what it is. <laughs> Precisely. Well, what, what I'm appreciating is hearing from all of you um, who've had access to, to watch this just how much hard work the actors were doing to take some of this writing and make it make sense that they were really doing a lot of work and there was a lot of other stuff to make this a more fleshed out thing so kudos to acting and actors and directing and, and all of that maybe this line makes sense then in context in the split second that scorby's attention was diverted sarah seized her chance and leapt on his arm like a tigress <laughs> and then five seconds later the doctor darted in and sent the gun flying with a skilled mule-like kick i'm like why are they suddenly animals like i just don't and then the, the doctor sidestepped and grabbed his hand in a venusian necklock and gave it a short sharp twist there was a nasty click at that moment i'm like Wait, did the doctor just kill him that can't because the doctor doesn't kill anybody, right? That's a rule. It is like the trope. If somebody twists somebody's head and said there's a click, that is supposed to mean that they broke their neck and that they're now dead. You can <laughs> knock people out, but you don't twist their neck with clicking noises and then they're fine. They're just going to come around later. Like, 
I was really like, wait, why did the doctor kill somebody? And then four pages later, he's like, Sarah, I will never use a gun. <laughs> you just killed that guy. But then I realized that he came around and I was like, oh, okay. But just so very confused. On screen, you get that little bit of confusion too, but you immediately see that Scorby is not dead. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Yeah. Yeah, you don't know because they're like, oh, he sank to the ground. I'm like, oh, he's dead? Dead? Also calling it the Venusian <laughs> necklock, I think, is Hinchcliffe's way of trying to hark back to the Pertwee era. And that same, briefly right after that, that mention of the doctor leading them through the plants like an Indian brave. Yes, yes, there's that too. Both inaccurate and tacky. <laughs> there was a reference to chop suey that I was like, you know, with the oh. Agent Orange thing, suddenly this is all starting to seem very Orientalist. And I just realized that, so, you know, at one point the doctor is posing as a chauffeur, but that was like 20 pages earlier to this part where yes. um, the doctor's like, I must look at this pod. He tore off the chauffeur's clothes. I'm like, wait, did he just turn to someone who was a chauffeur and strip them naked? That's what it makes it sound like. <laughs> there was this other part where something scary is happening between him and Sarah and the text says the doctor gave Sarah a squeeze and I was like ooh where <laughs> but you know 10 pages later it said the doctor squeezed her hand and I said well okay I, I knew that that's what was happening but because this book doesn't give us any context or outline of physical affection between these two characters I don't know what that means when he says he squeezed her I truly don't know as a reader it just becomes another punchline for me for this podcast. He really isn't paying much attention to the words he's using, and that is something that you cannot accuse Terrence Dix of doing. Terrence Dix, if he has a double entendre in any of his books, you know it was intentional. Much like Ian Martyr, who never met a dirty joke he didn't want to put into a Doctor Who book. Whereas Hinchcliffe just doesn't it loses everything because not only is the wordplay gone but also he's not thinking about how these things are going to be taken by the reader so yeah i'm not at all surprised that you took it that way he doesn't even know how to spell affect right it's a great line chase says you've heard of the theory that irregular light patterns can affect the senses of so-called mindless things the doctor nodded yes like scorby here and that's a brilliant burn but you can't get to the burn without thinking oh my god that should be an a not an e it's an a it's like oh god i hate being an english teacher some days <laughs> You know, it's funny. I, I feel like I thought that ripping into this was going to be more fun. And now I'm just kind of depressed. I'm just like it's, not, like, it's not fun to make fun of this. It's just sad. It's just disappointing. I it, it I is. hope, you know, I maybe I, I will find this show. Maybe I'll find some of Hinchcliffe's other works so I can redeem him. Because now I'm just like, why? Why, sir? Why why did this happen? What was going on for you at this time? Just Just why? I've kind of feel the same way because in general, I'm, I'm a fan of his, so it feels kind of wrong to just beat up on him, but this book's pretty awful. <laughs> I hate to say it. It's just, and because I know I'm carrying this kind of baggage that enjoying the TV story brings in that might not be fair to it, but I think even without that, and I maybe mean, you guys can attest to that, but with even without that, it's still pretty bad. It's not just that it lets down something that's very good, the TV story, but it's that it's actually just not a good book, too, like in any way. <laughs> and that's troubling, because most of the time, the panelists who have not seen the original might like it. 
Whereas those of us who've seen the story might say, ah, it really lets us down. Or the exact opposite will happen, that they will say, oh god, this is terrible. Whereas we might say, oh, this is a really faithful adaptation of the book, so it's really great. Last episode, we pretty much all agreed on how much we love the book. I think we all pretty much agreed on how much we hate this one. You've all read probably more Target than I have, but I've read my fair share, definitely in the double digits. It's not even that I'm not used to the format or don't understand what these were, that they were aimed towards a younger audience and that they were deliberately kind of sparse novelizations to be short form. I'm judging it based on all of that. <laughs> but we've also, we've, we've had plenty of them that are just as short and they're amazing. They're beautiful and they have wonderful characterization and themes and you totally get all of that. And this one's flat. It's not, it's not there at all. We've even had longer stories that have been compacted to the same length. Don't you might remember that the War Games, for instance, is a 10-parter, and that was adapted down to, I think, what, 138 pages? And y'all loved it. And that says something. It all depends on the writer who's involved with doing the chore, which means that the next book is just going to be painful. Something that I don't think we mentioned yet and that did come up when we were talking about Brain of Morbius is um, how, at least in that book, how awesome of a character Sarah is and what an absolute piece of cabbage she is in this story. She gets taken into the power unit and like tied in there and then there's this ticking down bomb happening and she's just in there and she doesn't care. It's like, oh, she struggled against her bonds and that was it. And there's this line in the power unit, Sarah stared mesmerized as the seconds ticked away. So she's just lying in there, just mesmerized in another trance by these numbers and her impending doom. I'm like, what the hell? In all the other books, Sarah would have been figuring something out. She would have been using a hairpin. I don't know, finding a Swiss army knife, whatever. She she would have been figuring this shit out. She wouldn't have let herself be put into that thing in the first place. Also, could we pause for the whole moment when they were like, oh, we're going to go check and see if the monster is outside. And they're like, it could only have been hiding in the power unit. And then they get there and they're like, it's not here. And then it's like, it was hiding outside. <laughs> how utterly pathetic. I mean, I can see how like on the screen, maybe that would have worked because maybe they go outside and you see the monster coming around the corner of the, the unit, whatever that thing's supposed to look like. That was the other thing. I just kind of had a hard time knowing what anything was supposed to look like in this story. Yeah, because he didn't tell us. <laughs> he doesn't do visual descriptions at all. It was very, very difficult it's not impossible to get past, but it's more taxing to you as a reader because you're really trying to sit there being like, okay, what is this? And then you don't get it. And it seems like everyone is just moving through some sort of void. I cannot even imagine what it was like reading this book, not having seen. It was hard enough for me and just because I haven't seen it in a while, but I have. It was enough to remind me of, okay, I can go back and kind of picture some of this. Besides the cover art, there's really nothing to go on. And you know, you know, it's vegetable matter, obscene vegetable matter even. <laughs> That's really about all you get. Kale man. Like, <laughs> so ridiculous. Please stop using the word vegetable. It's so bad. Vegetables are not scary. Cucumbers are not fearsome. They're for a spa day. <laughs> the, the least scary thing you could be talking about. His cauliflower fingers wrapped around oh, my no. neck and the healthy okra. <laughs> I will really have to show the story to you because, oh my God, it is so much better than this book would have you believe yep you'll be hopefully will be very refreshed by seeing this and be like oh gosh yeah that was just a bad book i don't mind 
just kind of overwhelming action things. I'm like, yeah, give me Hans Gruber and Nakatomi Tower and like fire and bullets. That's great. But here I'm like, okay, we're getting the government. We're going to drop some bombs. Since when has this ever been in like a Doctor Who book where you're going to make a Molotov cocktail? What the fuck are you doing? I didn't know that the doctor dealt in that kind of thing. I, I don't know. It was just very odd to me. I'm sorry, Jenny. You are the biggest nerd. I have never heard anybody actually know the name of the tower in Die Hard. <laughs> what? It's, it's a classic. It's a classic movie. Classic movie. Classic oh Christmas. Classic buddy movie. It's an amazing movie. It's the, it's the only movie where you're like, oh, yeah, this is a love story. And you're like, yeah, between those two yeah. guys. Yeah, that's true. This is a beautiful movie. I love that movie. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm a huge fan. <laughs> I must be, too, because although I think it's from that meme that comes out every Christmas time. Like, I don't think it's Christmas time until I see Hans Gruber fall from the Nakatomi Plaza or something like that's how I oh, know is it is from that meme. But like, still, yeah, I, I knew exactly what you were saying. So. <laughs> yeah no like i love i love that kind of thing i love seeing bruce willis walking over broken glass and whatever his his badass thing wants to do i can lean into maximalist violence and fire independence day that scene from the terminator when there's like the skeleton on the fence oh yes sarah connor's dream skin just fucking blown clean off it's amazing you know like i can lean into that totally fine i mean the thing right the thing is horrific and I love it. I'm like, wow, look at these practical effects. This is just disgusting. But here I'm like, what is going on? And how, where do they find these swords? And apparently there's lasers. It's just too much. Too many genres of things trying to come together in a way that just doesn't make sense. At least not on this page. At least on the page, we don't have to see Beresford's weird ass teeth, because that's actually <laughs> one of the most frightening things of the story to me. <laughs> and the moment when he orders his men to shoot the crinoid square in the chest. He actually uses yeah. this line. It's like, where the hell is the chest on this thing? Yeah, what part of that, like, pulsing lump of plant matter is the chest? Like, <laughs> All of it. It's just a big, giant chest. Yeah. <laughs> Large chest. Oh, God. Well, and, you know, I was disappointed about that because the cover has these great tentacles. And I'm like, oh, yeah. you know, there's always about tentacles, but whatever. I'm here for it. And then there was just way less tentacle than I think I wanted in this story. I was like, oh, come on. There could have been more. They could have been restraining Sarah. It could have been weird. Give me yeah. anything. I watch anime, okay? Like, come on. There's nothing more disappointing than a short tentacle, is there? <laughs> I'm very disappointed. I thought I remembered there being more like tentacle-like things. And I think in the book he calls them vines. But I yes. swear in the show, they look a lot more like you know, it's using them like tentacles. It's coming in through windows. Yeah, Eric, that's a that's a really good point. Like that's another place where the choice of word has sold the story short because a vine wrapping around you is somehow a lot less sinister than a, a tentacle. Even if he had said a tentacle like vine or a thick vine or ropes of vines or something, there's a lot of other ways that... From the way he uses words and the rest of it, maybe he's hung up on the fact that technically it wouldn't be a tentacle because it's a plant. It paints the picture much better to, you know. If he's going to get hung up about that and not have a few of these other things, then... Yeah, that's true. Uh... <laughs> This was where yeah. Hinchcliffe was, it was pushed too far. <laughs> Can't use the word tentacle. It's just not proper. <laughs> oh, do we have anything else we want to say about this? All plant eaters must die. That, that's it. Believe it or not, that line is genuinely scary on screen. Oh, and I, I should probably talk about why that is. Chase is played by Tony Beckley, and if you don't recognize that name, if you know a movie called When a Stranger Calls, 
I think that's what he's the uh, crazy person in. He is terrifying. The actors in this are all just down the row. Very good. Even Beresford with his weird-ass teeth. They are just great in their roles. And it just doesn't translate. So lines like that are just going to fall flat. I think it all comes back to that he didn't spend any time creating characters here. They're just names on a page. I think all of that stuff would work with just a little more telling us who these people are and what they're all about, what their motivations are. Well, I shouldn't say telling us because he tries to do that, but writing some characters. (laughs) A little more writing talent, perhaps? For prose, anyway, because as we've said, but still, God. Everyone's like curled into a fetal ball. Like, no, make it stop, Tony. (laughs) (laughs) One last thing, and this happens at the end. The doctor telling Sarah that he's going to take her on a vacation on a holiday to Cassiopeia. Mm -hmm. Just out of nowhere. It's so strange. And that does happen on screen. However, it's also followed up with a scene that is missing, which is fine because it's in Dave Davis's review of it. That sounds weird if you don't have the performance. And this one, God, it really needs a performance, doesn't it? Yeah, Sarah is like randomly flirting with this Sir Colin guy. Would you fancy a tiny excursion as well? Her eyes twinkled with humor. And then he's like, oh, my my wife is expecting me. And she's like, oh, I better go. A little wave and ran out of the room and twitched my little ass at you. I was like, but what? Did she meet him like five seconds ago? What? Why? What? I mean, go get it, girl. That's fine. Free love and and empowerment and whatever. But I just was very confused all of a sudden. I don't know who Sir Colin is. Like, he's like, I just don't. Well, the fact that it's written that way and that the next line is, oh, but my wife, I mean, that even like makes yes. it that much more that he was reading it that way, too. It wasn't just the bad writing. It was it, that that's what was happening. I, I certainly don't specifically remember that scene on TV, but I don't remember that being the case. Those lines are word for word the same. But you can say those lines and not have it turn into something dirty. Yeah. Her eyes twinkling with humor. I don't associate that with like a default sexuality. Even if she had said, would you like to come with us? Or would you fancy coming with us? She smiled or something. Sir Colin smiled, I don't know, guiltily back. Or smiled, maybe he has like a stiffness to it, like smiled uncomfortably black. Oh, I'd be delighted, but my my wife is expecting me for tea. Then suddenly it would be completely different. But we just don't know. The way that line is delivered on screen, the first time I ever saw this story as young Nipper, I honestly thought that he was going with them. It is that charmingly delivered. And the actor playing Sir Colin is such that you're like, oh, why doesn't he go with them? He'd be fun as a companion for a while, but no. No, doesn't happen. So much that could, but didn't. (laughs) Especially on the page, good lord. Well, as we always do, let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers and follow up with our own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book, or you simply have a question about it, simply read the book, write a review, or comment on our Goodreads group by the deadline so that we have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves. You may just get your review read out loud here. The average rating for this book on Goodreads out of five stars is 3.69, which is a couple of points higher than Brain of Morbius. Wow. Wow. I know. The the reviews from our Goodreads group have again been edited for length. Sorry, guys, but keep them coming. In our Goodreads group, Damon gives his usual very short review, 
gives it 3.5 stars, saying, A good read, quite dark in places for Doctor Who, better than the TV version, which is a little overrated. Aw, damn Ooh. <laughs> Burn. Oh, now, now. Our Patreon Dave Davis also gives it three stars and says, There are for me two main problems with the story on television. The Doctor, when beating the chauffeur unconscious, seems to relish the violence a little too much. On the page, the chauffeur is almost accidentally knocked out, and though the doctor is ready to hit him, he quickly decides he doesn't need to. The other problem is the story's structure. It only occurred to me when I listened to the commentary track on the DVD of a later story in which the script editor of the time, Anthony Reed, said that for a six-parter, they like to dogleg the story. What he meant by this is that the story would seem to be coming to a close near the end of episode four, and then go off on the tangent for the last two episodes. That's sort of what happens here, but it's the wrong way around. The tangent with the second pod and the location shift to England happens after only two episodes, with four episodes still to plow through. Because of this, though each episode is well-paced, the story as a whole drags, for me at least. On the page, it's not so bad, possibly because the longer part of the story is compressed to fit the page count, though I think I would have preferred the Antarctic scenes to have been shortened to a prologue rather than a third of the book. There are a couple of other slight problems on screen, which aren't as noticeable in prose. The Brigadier would have appeared, but Nicholas Courtney wasn't available, so all the authority figures that the Doctor turns to for help seem a bit anonymous. I don't know how Sarah was supposed to leave, but I think the corny scene at the end, with the Doctor intending to take Sarah to a vacation planet and ending up back in Antarctica, was tacked on in a hurry. Thankfully, it's gone in the book. And finally, Daniel Kukwa gives it a single star and says this novelization is up there with the fifth Doctor story, Kinda, as one of those rare target novelizations that fails in every way to translate a particular story's exceptional quality from the television screen to the printed page. Considering how exciting, witty, grim, and fabulous The Seeds of Doom was on television, you would think that the producer of that superb spectacle would put some extra effort into capturing its special qualities for the novelization. But Philip Hinchcliffe, brilliant producer though he is, simply engages in a mundane, uninspired transcribing process that can only be described in one word, disappointing. Ooh. So, Dalton, let's start with you. Out of five stars, what would you give this? I'm going to go with a two, which I think is pretty low for me. It felt kind of uninspired and flat. I do want to see the televised version now, but reading this book isn't what has made me want to see the televised version. Hearing you guys talk about it is what has made me want to see the televised version. The book is just kind of blah. So two stars for me. Okay, and Jenny? I always leave open everyone's tastes are different. And I totally own that I have kind of exacting tastes when it comes to to fiction in books. There's very many things that other people are like, oh, this was great. It was my favorite novel that I just didn't care for. And that's fine. That's the cool thing about writing is that I think there's a reader for everything. At the same time, when we can sit here and pick out so many pieces of textual evidence to support not just things that didn't work for us, but things that literally make this narrative incohate, that just didn't make it even sensible. Like, that's not something that I think anybody can argue against. We, we have evidence if we were to write a paper about this, we could get an A in the class. Like, it, it just exists. It's here. And then I think, too, like, I'm with Goodreads on Daniel. Like, it's hearing all of you talk about how apparently wonderful 
this was on screen makes this all the more tragic. There's just no no reason for this to be so bad. And I don't, you know, I understand like life is life. Maybe something traumatic was happening for Hinchcliffe right now. Maybe he was sick. Maybe his grandmother was dying. I don't know. I don't come here looking for masterpieces. But at the same time, yeah, this really stinks. I'm going to price this right it. I'm going a half star. Oh, Ooh. wow. My goodness, that may be the lowest rating we've ever had on the show. And usually Allison gives those. Uh, Eric, out of five stars, what would you give this? I'm going to repeat a lot of well, what I already said and, and what Dalton and Jenny definitely already said. And that is there's like about every problem you can have. And I think this came out of the Daniels review as well on Goodreads. But about every problem you can have with adapting any piece of, of television or, or film into a novel goes wrong here. And it's that the characters don't translate. The story itself is basically, a, you know, as Jenny said, incoherent. It is shocking, I agree with Daniel, that it, that the person who produced this has no concern for actually making a worthwhile translation of, of his own work. And I guess that's my explanation. Maybe he tried, maybe he absolutely put everything that he had into this. My brain has to say, you know, have some reason why this is so bad, because somebody who I know is, is very capable of creating brilliant fiction. You know, obviously this was just something that was not important to him. I'm not actually going to go on record and presume to know that, but it was an easy read because it was short, but it was not a pleasurable read because not only was it disappointing, but just as a book itself, I tried to take myself away from having seen it before and just didn't do much for me. It was a mess. I had trouble picturing scenes that I couldn't remember. It was not a well-written novel. So it pains me a little bit to say that, as we've discussed before. Because I really like the story itself, and those elements are here, some of them. I'm going to match Dalton. I'm going to go with two stars because I was able to... I, I'm trying to disconnect from that, you know, the the memory of liking the television show, but... I do think there was enough here that was likable story-wise, but the prose and the re the presentation and the, the fact that the characters, they're just names on a page. They're not really characters at all. So I think, yeah, two two stars, and I think I'm being generous to that a little bit, but I'm going to stick with that. So. All right. And as for me, I'm going to paraphrase something that Dalton used to say quite often on the show by saying it was a quick read, but it wasn't a fun read. <laughs> This is one of my favorite stories. I swear to God, this is one of my favorite televised stories. But somehow Hinchcliffe has not only made it shorter, but he has also diminished it. Some of the better jokes are gone, even the ones that could have been rendered perfectly fine on the page, and there are certain things added that are not nearly as good. It also says something about the differences in their styles that Terrence Dix wrote 140 pages in the last book out of a four-parter. And Philip Hinchcliffe cuts six-parter down to 128. Were it not for the fact that he did this with Keys of Marinus as well, I would say, you know, maybe this is just a bad book on his part. But I've also read the next book, so I know that's not the case. And I agree with Eric that the elements of the good story are still here. It's just, it's almost as if we're seeing them through this weird miasma filter where you can't see them clearly. Were it not for Robert Banks Stewart writing a very good script, this book might have been even worse, which is why I am giving it a 1.5 out of 5. Not quite as low as some, but not as high as others. So those of you out there who think that I'm too hard on these books, fight me on this one. <laughs> because this one is a 1.5 out of 5. Well, and you just have to be honest about what's on the page. Uh, that I think is very important to remember in these conversations. It's like, 
we I'm not at all criticizing because I don't know anything about who Philip Hitchcliffe is. Like, I don't know this person's life. Every person's life and, and their work has value. I'm so glad that everybody created these things into the universe. But then when you create something like that's separate and that gets to, to stand on its own. And I think that we've had a very reasoned conversation about this. And it's OK. It's OK to be like, hey, this thing could have been so much better. And that's sad <laughs> and to, to really come at it from that angle. Yeah, yeah. But that's why it disappoints me as much as it does, because like Eric, I really genuinely admire Philip Hinchcliffe and what he did for the show. And for him to have done this is almost like a betrayal. I can't believe you've done this. <laughs> One, 1. 1.5 out of 5. Oh, fuck. I can't believe you've done this. Thank you, everyone. Uh -huh. Yeah, you're welcome. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Next time, we start Tom Baker's third season when we discuss Phil Pinchcliffe's novelization of The Mask of Mandragora. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds so sad. Yeah, I am. I am. In the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast, all in words with those spaces. Also, feel free to follow us on Twitter. We're at DWTargetBC, or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice, including Spotify. If all else fails you, and it inevitably will, just like a Philip Hinchcliffe novelization, email me directly at emperordalek at gmail.com with Target Book Club Podcast in the subject line so I don't ignore it. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you, Eric Gobranson, for joining us for this episode. You are welcome. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a blast, and I hope to be back. So. Yes, we'd love to have you again. And everybody else, stay safe and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Bye.